Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to the first ever Super Super 8 podcast. It's a great name. So my name is Pat Lynch, and what I kind of want to do with this podcast is just maybe, I don't know, document and talk more about um, some of the motion picture side of uh, some, you know, some analog and film related topics. Um, when I go to work and I'm working at my desk, I listen to a lot of film photography par- uh, podcasts, um, which I will also go into uh, perhaps in a later episode and just in terms of just compiling or making a more recent list an audible list of just all the things that I've been listening to and maybe do some research and try to just compi- compile them all for anybody who listens. Because I know when I started, I was kind of just piecemealing different podcasts together. I'd listen to one, and I'd go through their back catalog and some of the interesting episodes that I saw on the show notes of stuff that I'd be interested in. And then they would talk about some other podcast or they'd have a guest um, from you know a, a different podcast, host from a different podcast. And so now I've got this cache of all these podcasts, and primarily I listen on Spotify, so there's probably more out there. And for all I know, uh, there's probably a couple out there on uh, film photography in terms of uh, in terms of motion, motion picture, shooting Super 8, 16mm, um, and even 35. Um, primarily, though, I want to focus this on the motion picture aspect of shooting film um i'm just starting out myself so this will be more of a learning type podcast um talking about my gear buying new gear kind of uh just going through the trials of things that work and don't work um in terms of shooting things like super 8 and just talking about the super 8 world how it's coming back around i think this is definitely a resurgence um with the help of people in the film community. Yeah, I, I just noticed in listening on Spotify, you can't really find anything. And of course, not that I'm, I guess I'm gauging my my thought on this by on Spotify, because that's really the only place that I listen to it, and it's not too, too hard to get on Spotify. But I noticed that there was a lot of film photography podcasts, but it was just still photography. There was no motion picture type uh, analog photography, I guess is what I'll call it. Um, no motion picture. Motion picture just sounds so official, but what I'm getting at is this: you know, there there aren't any dedicated podcasts for Super 8 or for 16 millimeter, and obviously 35 and any, you know, any wonky variations of those or anything in between that I'm kind of not thinking about. But what I really want to do in this initial prototype .01 episode. Um, I'll call it episode one, screw it. I just want to go over like a history of, you know, where I come from, where I'm at in terms of this film photography world. A lot of it, some, some of the times I'll be talking about things about still photography. I've done a lot of still photography over the last couple of years. Um, I'm younger, I'm in my mid twenties. So I obviously come from a digital world when I started getting into it and working in video, primarily professionally. Um, I don't so much anymore. But um, that's kind of where I came from, and then I stopped and over the years molded my way, or just kind of found my way into film photography slowly. So we'll go over that. Um, so yeah, I I worked. I was a professional uh, wedding wedding cinematographer, videographer, whatever you want to call it, um, making cinematic wedding films for quite a number of years. 
Um, I was helping out a guy who owned a company, so I was just basically playing second shooter most of the time. He would do other things like music videos, corporate shots, uh, promo videos, commercials, uh, primarily working with DSLRs and stuff, and that was really fun. I got to work and edit with him. I kind of fell out of that over the last couple of years. Um, business, you know, obviously is slow during the winter, and I just needed something more stable, so I ended up doing various things after that. I worked at a cemetery for a while. Um, I tempted at a couple places, and now I work at a university uh, in the town that I live in. So backing up way, way up when I was a kid, maybe 14, 15, um, my stepdad had some old, I was, you know, I was just getting into the video thing, you know, I was into computers and I was editing video and stuff and I had to buy some more RAM for my computer. And for some odd reason, this, this particular RAM came from Japan or Korea or something and it came with, I don't remember at the time, but it came with 12 rolls of, I believe it was Fuji Superior 200. It came with like 12 rolls of that. And I think it was like 24 shots a roll. And that came with it. And my stepdad was intrigued. And he's like, well, back in the 80s, I bought the, one of the first things I got with my brand new job when I, you know, in the 80s, like my first big paycheck or whatever, my first credit card buyer, whatever it was, was I bought this Nikon FG brand new with all this gear and a couple lenses and, you know, the carrying case and all that stuff and he still had it and still worked so he's like let's just drive around and just shoot stuff and i'll show you how to use it I'm like, well i mean i it was very cool it was cool to me but i wasn't particularly interested in it it definitely gave um a different perspective and it definitely gave the images a different type of look there was a couple shots that i took that were that were pretty decent and I actually still have them lying around somewhere. Um, you know, we'd we'd fire off a couple rolls, bring them to CVS. The next weekend, we'd go out until the you know all the rolls were expended, all the rolls were gone, and um, that was about it. And I didn't really do too much with it after that. And he gave me that camera, and I've just been carrying around wherever I went ever since. And at the same time, my mom also kind of had the same deal, where she had a Minolta. Uh, Maxim seven thousand uh, five thousand, excuse me, kind of the same setup. Uh, shorter was it shorter prime? I think it was two lenses. One was like a zoom. Anyways, she said it was broken. I just carried them around, not really realizing why I was carrying them around. I wasn't using them or anything like that. And you know, eventually I got older, um, moved out. They ended up in storage, another storage unit, another storage unit, some closets, some garages, um, some apartment room closets you know they just moved with me everywhere I went and then eventually kind of when I got out of the video scene you know as my primary source of income I don't know I just got I just in a bad place and I just I don't know for some reason I just had this hankering to just start shooting photography like just kind of go back to basics not dealing with any kind of digital equipment or photoshop or having to you know having the ability to take a thousand shots and having to sift through them because, you know, after you get a digital camera, you're just kind of inclined to take 10 photos of something rather than one because you have the ability to, and if you want to get a beautiful shot out of it, why not? Right? So I, I started taking that camera out and the only place that sells film now, or at least that I knew of in my area, I'm in the new England area, Southern New Hampshire, Northern Massachusetts area, um, was Walmart. 
and all they sold were packs of Superior 200. Um, occasionally, I'd be able to find four later on, but uh, I just I would just buy rolls there, and I I think I went through I don't know I just you could buy packs of four for I'm not sure what it was 30 bucks or something, and overpriced I think for what like a you could get them online for, but it's you know it's Walmart and nobody a lot of actual walk-in stores don't sell film anymore unless it's a Photoshop or camera shop or something like that. So I didn't I didn't know any better, and I didn't I wasn't as passionate about it. Or was it as committed to it as I am now to even bother looking if there was any shops around where I could buy any? Or I didn't even know about different types of film stock. I just went and bought the stuff. So I just shot it and um, eventually, I forget whenabouts, but I don't know, about a year in, I started shooting more and more and the the shutter broke. The um, The film advance lever is now stuck and I still have it and it's just kind of collecting dust so eventually... I mean, for its sheer um, nostalgic reasons, and obviously because it was for my stepdad, um, I want to get it fixed at some point. So eventually I'll do an episode on camera repair in terms of maybe, probably not diving into it myself, but um, at least on this camera. But in terms of, you know, if I can send it somewhere, how much that would cost, um, would it even be worth doing, is it feasible? I'm sure it's not too big of an issue, and I'm sure somebody's seen this issue before on this camera, but... So eventually, I was kind of bummed out because now I was in the middle of this kind of addiction of taking still photography. And so um, I just went on Facebook Marketplace, and which was kind of like the new Craigslist at the time. And now it kind of is the rival slash, you know, it's, it's just an easier type of Craigslist. And I would go on and I just found somebody trying to give away or trying to sell for a pretty low price this Olympus OM-10. Um, same deal couple lenses one of them was trashed and the other one was just kind of like a, i think it was a 50 and uh yeah some guy was just selling it and it was his dad's or grandfather's or something and he just wanted to get rid of it and he used it for film school and he hadn't used it in 10 years and um you know he said last time i turned it on it worked but obviously you need batteries or whatever for so i don't know so bought that from him for like 50 bucks uh found some batteries at a store popped them in started shooting again now that thing's broken. Um, the I think the meter. Uh, I I tried switching out the batteries, but the meter just kind of gets stuck on. It flashes at sixty um, inside on the metering there. So so that thing's broken. <laughs> um, eventually, I'll just do a whole podcast on all my broken gear because I think I have more. I definitely one hundred percent have more broken gear than I do have gear that's one hundred percent usable. But such is life with thirty, forty, fifty year old cameras right so now i had the bug and it was around this time where i discovered that there were all these different types of uh, film stocks and now i got really excited because now i'm looking on instagram and online and all these blogs and articles and stuff on and all these instagram posts and tags of all these beautiful shots taking all these various types of film stocks so now i'm super excited mm -hmm. so in the middle of that, so I took a lot of great photos with the OM-10. Um, I was traveling during the year or two. I was traveling a lot, I should say, during the year or two that it, I had it and pretty much had it on me all the time. Um, I always made sure I had a couple rolls. Um, I was still tr primarily shooting Fuji on it. And it was right around the time where I picked up my next camera, which was a Minolta Maxim, I think it was a 400 SI. I want to say it's kind of a plastic thing it's more on the consumer side you can't do too too much uh 
there's not too much in terms of controls aside from um you know some presets like landscape and portrait and stuff like that and obviously a manual uh manual shutter and a manual um, aperture i should say um so i bought that and that actually had a roll of film in it that looked like it was 10 15 years old still haven't developed that which i'm sure i'll get to it in a later episode and this is when i started really trying to purchase uh film stocks other than fuji because i just completely fell out of love with that film stock once i saw what what was what i was what other film stocks were capable of and i just thought like oh like obviously the fuji is kind of like the, the one of the cheaper types of stocks out there not that it looks bad it's all about a matter of taste but just if i had taken the same shot with portrait 400 for instance than i did with you know some fuji it's like it would have just looked more how i wanted it to look so now i got excited and on top of that i found out there's a hunts video store uh sorry hunts photo store in the ta in the city i live in and they carried film all kinds of different stuff and they have different stuff in there every week uh, i'm not sure where they get it from or whatever but it's it's always changing i mean they have the primary like they have fuji and they have uh some portrait in there and ektar and stuff but Occasionally, they would have some like Cinestill and like some weird stuff, and and this is where I discovered uh, my love of XP2, Ilford XP2. Um, I'm saying it like it's some kind of revelation. Um, it was for me. Uh, and XP2, oddly enough, so I I walked in there for the first time and I said I'm looking for you know a couple rolls of film, and thankfully the guy behind the counter actually knew what he was talking about and he wasn't just some guy trying to sell me you know an a7s or something and i said well i'm looking to try something different you know just starting out and stuff and he said well he sold me a roll of ektar 100 a great film and i technically haven't i haven't shot a roll since i bought that roll um i had a bad experience with it but that was more of a camera fault issue but and then he sold me a roll of xp2 and i can't remember if he told me or if i looked it up but i'll just for the sake of argument i'll say he told me but he said this is a black and white film. However, it is one of the only black and white films from Ilford, or probably out there, that it shoots black and white, but you can still process it in C41 chemistry. And at the time, I had no idea what he was talking about. But obviously, as you may or may not know, a lot of black and white films are get processed differently than color C41 film. So that was exciting primarily because, moving onward... Instead of bringing it to like a CVS or a Walgreens or something, I was I found out and I discovered that there was a lab about 45 minutes north of where I live, um, old school film lab, which I'm sure some of you might be familiar with because they have free shipping. You print out their labels, you get a mailer from the store, you get it from Staples, anywhere you can get them online. Pack your film in there, tape the label on there, stick it in the mail. You can ship it to them for free. They process it, send it back. You fill out their online form in terms of payment and stuff. And they send it and they send back the negatives and or prints if you get prints for free. And then you get access to a, an online gallery that they send you. So you can download your, you know, all the work is done for you. And not only that, but they had a cool online social media presence. So just the sense of being part of like that kind of club. And obviously they would promote people's shots if you allowed them to and some of my shots made it on there which is super cool they ended up following me back a very cool cool group of people 
Um, and I still send my stuff to them today. Um, but that was the whole, it was just this whole learning process of like, there's this whole other, like this is whole other world and there's this whole other, uh, group or this whole system out there that I just had no idea existed because I was like, well, who shoots film anymore? And I knew people did, you know, I'd, I'd be at weddings and photographers would shoot digital, but they'd also have a film camera on them. But it was kind of like a side thing for everybody. And I guess primarily it still is, but I didn't realize how recently in the last 10 years or so it did die. But in the last, you know, four or five of that, I would say it's really picked back up again, um, especially with the prices of still cam still photography cameras and even um, film uh, motion picture cameras, 60 millimeter and Super 8 especially. Um so the OM10 started dying out on me, and then I bought the Maxim 400 SI, and I traveled with it, and I went to Ireland with it this past March, and I'm not sure what happened. Um, they, they take these, they, a lot of these mid-90s style cameras take this very funky battery, um, the 2CR, I can't remember, it's, it's kind of like, like two double A's kind of sandwiched together in this little compartment. You can't separate them and you can't, there's no real replacement for them. You can get them online for a couple bucks each, but you know, they're like maybe eight bucks, give or take. It's like, ah, oh, for a battery, like a single battery. Um, so that's kind of a bummer. But anyways, I bought a couple of these, went traveling, stupidly didn't bring a spare, but you know, it said the battery was full and it would tell me if it wasn't. So anyways, I went to Ireland with it. I shot 11 rolls and about halfway through my trip, eh, it was about three quarters of the way through my trip, the focus, the autofocus stopped working. I'm a sucker for autofocus, so I'll just get that out there. I do want another camera that's that's not autofocus, something from the 70s, especially because, you know, they're more, I mean, obviously they're more manual, but uh, they're just less likely to break, and I've, I've gone through a lot of heartaches lately, which I'll get into. But anyways, autofocus stopped working. Long story short, Sent 11 rolls of my Ireland trip to the lab, and uh, they ended up giving me the bad news where four of those rolls came back bust. Uh, and the great thing about a lot of these film labs is that if something like this happens, they will comp you for the roll. So they credit you back as, a, as just a great gesture. And it's, it's, it is discouraging, but it's also like, well, I have that money back. I didn't totally waste it, which is super nice of them to do. And obviously incentivizes you to, you know, send some more stuff to them, which I do plan to do. Um, so that was kind of a bummer. I thought it might have been a dead battery, and then it, I stuck a new battery in it when I came back and realized it. And, uh, it, I don't know, it just conked out on me. So that's kind of a bummer. So what I did in the middle of this was I hadn't really touched this, my mom's old Minolta uh, Maxim 5000, which is a lot older than the the Maxim 400 SI, which I was using in Ireland, but it was a little more prosumer. It wasn't completely pro in terms of uh, um, controls, but it was more so, and it just looked a little bit more professional. Not that I really cared about that, but I knew that my mother said it was broken. But knowing her it's like well maybe a roll just came back bad or maybe the lens was a little fogged up or had some you know 
it could have been anything. So I decided to get, and the kit lens that came with the 400, um, it was just kind of like a zoom 35 to 70 or something like that. I don't have it in front of me at the moment. I do have the 5,000 in front of me though. So kill two birds with one stone. I wanted a nicer lens. So I bought a 50 millimeter, uh, 1.7, um, pretty standard lens. It's a beautiful lens. Um, and I bought that, and I figured, well, if the 5,000 was just a bad lens on the, on the telephoto, I'll just pop it on there and see what happens. And I shot a roll of that Ektar 100 that the, the guy at the store sold me, and a lot of it came back way too dark. There was a couple shots that came out great, but a lot of the shots were just incredibly dark. I chalked this up to... Um, I just didn't know how to use it at first because it was it was um, probably about er it was probably early summer, probably, uh, April or May, and the sun was coming down and I was shooting and it's not a terribly high obviously hundreds not terribly high ISO, so I chalked it up to well maybe it was just too dark out because I'm I was an amateur. Um, didn't really use it too much after that until the 400 died. Then I started using it. Obviously, that was my only good camera, so I was using it exclusively. Um, I got a couple rolls back that were decent, and then I did what I shouldn't have done, which was I took a couple more test rolls, and then I took it on a bunch of major... <laughs> I mean, this is all my fault. So uh, I took it on a bunch of major trips and events and get-togethers and gatherings and family things and stuff like that, and I gathered a backlog of film rolls. And it wasn't until recently I realized that something, in fact, is wrong with the camera because uh, a lot of the film just comes back way too dark. So, my fault, but, uh, you know, what can you do? Um, so that's where I'm at right now. In the middle of this, I bought a... I haven't used it yet, so I haven't tested it. I bought a Canon EOS 1000, which is a very primitive-looking, plasticky Canon... Um, consumer 35 millimeter. Um, I do not have an EF mount lens for it yet, and that's why I haven't used it yet. Unfortunately, when I had a 7D um, Canon, I bought a 50 with it, I bought a 51.4 with it, and I had the kit lens, and um, I sold all that stuff. So I didn't have anything for it, and I still don't. Um, obviously, it might <laughs> might only be it might be the only camera that I have right now. That works. So, I know what you're all wondering. Let's get to the film stuff. The So, I know what you're all thinking. Let's get to the the motion picture stuff because it's called Super Super 8 Podcast. So, coming back, coming back, making a full circle, um, what am I talking about? So, when I was really, really getting into it, I discovered the Film Photography Podcast, the Film Photography Project. Um, I realized their store was super epic. I discovered their podcasts and their blogs. And it's such an awesome place, and I was like, this place is amazing. And this is really in the, this is about a year ago now, probably less than a year ago. And I started getting the, I started getting the, I started getting the itch, the motion picture itch. I was going back to my video roots. I was, I, I keep wanting to say film, but in this community, film is more used for still photography, but motion picture just sounds too official. It sounds too, sounds too fancy, but I'll just have to use motion picture as the term. But I was like moving pictures. It's like, ah, I just got the itch again. I was like, I wonder how 
hard it would be. Like, I want like, is Super 8 feasible? So I went online and I discovered that the Film Photography Project sells Super 8. Kodak still sells Super 8. Ektachrome was just announced. You know, they have Vision 3 and different stocks, and I'm learning all this stuff, and I'm like, oh my god, this is mind-blowing. So I go online, and I'm like, how much could Super 8 cameras possibly be? I had a couple hundred bucks in the bank to spend, <laughs> and probably just in general. Um, and I was like, all right. So I did some research, and I picked up this camera that I'm about to pull out. And I got, I think I got the steal of a lifetime on this because nobody knows about these cameras, I think. I mean, we know, but there just hasn't been too much documentation. Um, the Film Photography Project podcast, the FPP podcast, do, has done a lot of reviews and overviews on a lot of old Super 8 stuff. But I, there isn't too much mention of this brand, and this brand is Braun. B-R-A-U-N. It's a German company. And I had, and a lot of, and when a lot of people n think about the the Braunizo, which is the su their Super 8, um, uh, their Super 8 camera, they think of, I think it's the, I can't remember the model, but there's a specific model that was just m mass produced. And w if anybody knows the Braun Super 8, they think of this camera. And also this camera was um, submitted for like a, some kind of global museum as like a art piece because it looks so beautiful and i picked up a variation of a more professional version and it's the braun nizo 30 uh, 3056 it's it's got a couple more buttons on it and stuff um and it has a movable handle and it's got a little uh fold back for some stabilization on the shoulder it's got a beautiful eyepiece um it's got a zoom lens on it um I forget if I mentioned the, the handle is actually retractable, and when you pull it down, you click it down, it is very unlike most Super 8 cameras that you see. It does not come down to a 90 degree angle. It's just made for ergonomics, and I, and it's this. It's made out of this. It's very strange. It's made out of this very fine brushed style aluminum casing. It's it doesn't have a mark on it, and it looks like it was made five years ago it looks like it could have been made in the last 10 years and i looked it up and there's not too much information on it and any information that you do find is in german and i found out that this thing i think is from the mid to early 70s and that blows my mind i mean not only is it in pristine condition but just <clears throat> the the level of design and beauty that this that they just put into this thing and just it's it's just a gorgeous looking camera um and i picked that up and i bought a roll of i think it was 50d um kodak 50d um and i shot it and i have yet to submit it for scanning but um and i also now have a roll of 500t in it but i refuse to shoot it until i get the 50d back just in case it's trash um I know that was probably anticlimactic, but uh, that's where I'm at right now. In addition, I thought, well, 16mm is like the classic short film camera of all time. You know, every film, every short film you think about, 
from the 60s and 70s and 80s like any kind of up until very recently actually just kind of missed the boat on that where when i was in college it's like film schools were still using 16 millimeter and some of them still do so i bought a a very old as it turns out bolex uh non-reflex bought a c-mount lens with it um actually just shot my first roll with it it was an ancient um sfema roll from the early 90s probably actually mid 80s because it expired in 91 um i just actually recalled that it was um 50d uh reversal film so chances of any kind of decent image coming out of it if any image at all i'm told is probably uh probably a fat chance of that but uh we'll see i will give one little tidbit um at the time that I uh, bought it, I didn't know, and I don't think the FPP was selling it, but the only mass-produced film you could even buy for it anymore um, was single-perf 16mm. Or if you could find, I don't know, some an expired can of double-perf film. But I believe at the time, which wasn't too long ago, it was about six months ago, I couldn't find, or just didn't know where to find the double-perf 16mm, or at least new stuff, just to test it out. So what I did was I took a Dremel, <laughs> bear with me, I took a Dremel and shaved off the top um, teeth of the gears in the Bolex so I could put double per film on it. And I believe they're all smooth. Um, I ended up doing that several months ago and just hadn't bothered to, I know I was busy with other things. And I just last week uh, sent a roll through it. I sent that roll of Sfema through it. Um, which for some reason I thought was black and white, but it turns out it's not, um, which would have probably turned out a better image. And I haven't processed that either. Um, I'm trying to figure out if I can process it and where, um, cause it's kind of a very specific old Russian film. But anyways, um, in the middle of that, I bought a broken, um, pretty early Bolex, uh, 16 millimeter, uh, a reflex H16, um, it's not one of the new ones with like the eyepieces and stuff. It has an eyepiece, but it's not like doesn't have the eye cup on it and stuff. It's not one of the really intense ones from the '60s that I really want. Those those go for some big money, or bigger than I can spend at the moment. But um, I was really intrigued with just purchasing one that I could actually see through while I shot. Um, it was exciting to me to own something where you have to put some actual work into it and thought in terms of having to set up the shot through the lens, focus the lens uh in your head you know and manually set um exposure uh the really really the only thing that you can do is set the um the shutter speed how fast the film rolls through the camera and how wide the aperture is like those are the only two settings so i mean it, it's just like just go outside man because <laughs> you can't you're not gonna be able to get it bright enough uh, at least with the film that i was using plus three decades so um i shot that we'll see how it turns out i don't know um i tried doing a little bit of math in terms of figuring out how how bright i should get it and if it was even gonna produce an image if it was even bright enough it was kind of overcast that day but it was pretty pretty bright out still at like five or six o'clock in the afternoon when i decided to just go for it but that was the thing i just said let's just go for it it's an old film i don't even know if this camera works but Surprisingly enough, uh, it sent the film through pretty 
pretty solidly after the first couple of feet. It was a little hairy because the film was a little crinkly, so there's that too. Um, and the reflex that I bought, the one that I bought that was a little newer, probably from the early 50s, um, the I believe the motor is broken. So it's half apart on my desk as we speak. Um, and I'm going to see if I can buy a replacement and or just pull it apart and see if I can fix it. Because so I got it for a steal. I think it was like 100 bucks or 150 bucks or something for something that, if it worked pretty well, uh, it would go for a little bit more than that. So that would be exciting if I can get it fixed. But that's also an adventure because, you know, as old as these things are, it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty uh, interesting to pull apart. And if I can even do it, um, I'm realizing that if you if you yank the 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 motor bits out, it cracks the light seal so i'm gonna have to find some black sealant of some sort that's not too intrusive so it doesn't leak but also so um it doesn't mess with any of the the running of the film inside um, the film compartment so there's that but yeah um i really want to get into the motion picture side of film actual film not film in terms of a movie, but like actual film, analog film, processing film, um, sending your film out to be scanned and processed and processed and scanned um, is quite expensive uh, still. I don't really know where that's going, if it's going to get cheaper, if it's going to get more expensive. Obviously, it's not such a mass market thing anymore, um, but with the advent of the internet um, and its minor kind of like niche niche resurgence um you know i don't i don't really know where those things are going but in terms of a poor man's hobby that uh super 8 and 16 millimeter are not <laughs> i will tell you that um it's you know between 30 and 40 bucks to buy uh, a 50 foot roll of super 8 um, if i recall correctly off the top of my head and then on top of that it's you know 80-ish to, you know, upwards from there, dollars to ship it, get it processed, to scan it. Um, and it, what you get back is, obviously, especially for your first roll, is a questionable two and a half, three and a half minutes of footage. So uh, it's slow going right now, but um, I hope to build and um, we'll see where it goes. I do think I want to dabble in uh, processing my own stuff, trying to figure out how to scan my own stuff later on down the road. I just got my hands on a plus deck scanner for my um, negatives for still photography, so I'm saving a bit of money there. Um, if I could have, if I could spend all the money to get a lab to process and um, and high res scan some stuff, um, I would. It's just just getting too expensive a roll with how much I want to shoot. I'm, I'm more willing to, and I'm more apt to buy, uh, with still photography anyways, uh, just buy 10 rolls of all these random types of films to try them out and shoot a bunch of stuff over a couple months. And then, um, and then I'll just sit on them because I know how much, it's just daunting to think of how much 10 rolls would be to just process and scan. It's like, Ugh. so I just end up sitting on them but then months and months go by and it's like oh I forget what's on these and if I send three at a time like I don't know what's on them and, um, so I'm saving a bit of money there and I just got it it's still kind of uh, a rocky road in terms of 
uh, teaching some of this. I, it's a whole big story. I've ended up buying five untested plus deck scanners. Um, I think one of them worked. And on top of that, I spent like three weeks trying to figure out. It was so old that it just they just didn't build drivers for Windows 10 or any 64-bit operating systems. So I tried everything. I tried booting Windows. I tried installing Windows 7 onto one of my laptops. Um, that didn't work. I tried. I tried. I tried loading 32-bit 7 on something. That just didn't work. So I, I tried everything under the under the sun to try to get the scanner to work, and it didn't. And uh, I eventually just just threw in the towel, and I got a 7600, which is not a brand brand new Plus Deck scanner. It's not the newest model that I have. But um, it's newer, and they do have 64-bit uh, drivers, and that's been working well for me so far. Um, what else before I quit? Um, yeah, I'm I'm really looking to just kind of throw throw my hat in the ring in terms of just kind of building this community. I feel like there's a gap. Like I feel like I haven't found anything in terms of Super 8 or 16mm or any of the motion picture side of things. Um, the FPP podcast does talk about a lot of it, so they're a huge source of my inspiration, but there's nothing particularly dedicated to um, the motion picture side of things. But I don't know. Um, I just wanted to kind of throw my hat in the ring and uh, see what happens and you know, just uh, have a good time. So, yeah, my name's Pat Lynch, and um, we'll see you next week.